You're listening to Tech Writer Voices, a podcast specifically for technical writers and others who author help content. Our website is techwritervoices.com. I'm Tom Johnson, president of the Suncoast chapter in Tampa, Florida. Today, I'm talking with Emma Hamer, a performance improvement consultant in Vancouver, Canada. Emma is going to explain to us how to move our performance up to another level. She'll talk about how to set up the ideal collaborative workspace, how to overcome deep-seated fears of change, especially when you're implementing something totally new, like a content management system or a new way of writing. And she'll address some other common problems in the workplace. She has some fascinating ideas, very different, I guarantee you, about how the workspace should be organized, but at the same time, uh, illuminating and intriguing. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you're located and just tell us what your professional interests are. Well, I'm located in Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia. Um, My professional interests are very much focused on people and particularly on people and change and people and, you know, helping them perform at a much higher level than they themselves thought was possible. Um, I think that uh, generally people use only about 10 to 15 percent of their brain capacity and as Ellen DeGeneres in a skit once said and what do we do with the other 60 percent so um, I think that there's a lot more to be had out of people by um, utilizing what their strengths are rather than trying to um, which I think is futile to try and correct whatever weaknesses they have let's forget about the weaknesses and just concentrate on the strengths and then build a team of people who have complementary strengths so that's my um, oh. That's that's where I've been focusing on the last couple of years. What what? How would you describe the field of content management? Is that even the right word? Sorry, not content management. How would you describe the field of change management? And is that the correct f- term for the field that you're in? No, change management is part of what I do. the 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 field of practice is generally called performance management or performance uh, human performance technology. Um, it covers um, a very wide range of what, what we like to call in our field interventions. It could be from changing the lighting levels in a room so that people do not get sore eyes watching, looking at their screens all day, or changing the remuneration system in a company to reward people for uh, special talents that they have that otherwise would go unrecognized, to helping people cope and accommodate for changes in work methods and work behaviors that are required of them as the workers change. So change management is definitely part of it. Um, and ultimately, the change management should, of course, be picked up by the um, by the group's leaders, the, the managerial team, but nobody ever taught them how to do it. So that's very often where people like myself come in and, and provide the management team support in order to help them um, manage the changes that their staff are experiencing. So when you have a big technical writing department or something and they're implementing a major change such as moving to structured authoring or implementing a content management system, what kinds of challenges do these people face? Well, aside from the technological challenges, because those are very often quite readily fixable, all it takes is to spend some time and some money on it, um, and very often they can be fixed by external 
uh, people, either by the vendor or an integrator that has been brought in. So aside from the technological changes, the major changes, of course, are changing behaviors. Um, any kind of system, whether it's a content management system or whether it's a new management information system, is going to mean that the way we used to do things is going to change. And we human beings are just really not particularly good at coping with change. And the more radical we experience that change to be, the more human beings tend to dig their heels in and say, well, I don't want to change. I was perfectly happy the way it was before. Nobody asked my opinion about this. I'm just going to do what I used to do before. Um, so it's letting go of ingrained work habits. Um, you know, if you talk about a content management system and, or structured authoring, there's a lot of um, resistance, reluctance to let go of what has been perceived as kind of the creative freedom to, um, you know, to to play around with the layout, for instance, of text on a on a sheet. Whereas with structured authoring, <laughs> you just don't get to do that. The form is completely separate from the content, and and it's prescribed. It's in one way, and that's the only way we're going to do it. And you can't, you don't have the tools anymore to do it to to change it. And you know, for a lot of people, that means well, that's a diminishing um, aspect. That's you know, that diminishes the um, the freedom or the artistic creativity that they used to have, and they clearly see it as something that's less and not as good as what they used to have. So the challenge there is finding the triggers that will that will demonstrate and that will show them that actually this is a huge improvement and now we're going to free you up from all this repetitive work that you've been doing for the longest time and get you to do some stuff that you may never have had time to do before. Can you talk a bit about some of those triggers that managers or others can use to get employees to accept change without having the employee turn against you or, or become bitter about the new method? Yeah. Well, the sorry for my for my hesitation here, but I'm trying to think how to start this. The the late Admiral Grace Hopper, um, um, who, amongst many other achievements, also invented COBOL, the language, back, back in uh, the 70s, once has been quoted as saying that you manage things, but you lead people. In other words, you can't really manage people. So change management as a, as a you know, term is, is actually not all that correct either because, again, it is about people, and no, you can't really manage people. You can lead them. And how do you lead? How, you, how do you lead a team of people who, you know, are, are anxious about what's coming in the future, who can't really see what's ahead, who don't necessarily have all the information that as the departmental manager you supposedly do have? Well, the way to do that, of course, is to persuade and convince. Um, you can't enforce change. There's just no way. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, think of, I mean, I'm not saying that, that uh, that one should treat one's staff as, uh, as as children, but you know, if you try and enforce a certain behavior by a child by threatening, or it's not going to work. You're just going to breed a lot of resentment. So um, I used to I used to use a um, an expression that if I have to pull rank to get staff to do do what I want them to do to get them to comply, I've basically already lost the battle. Um, I failed to inspire them. I failed to motivate them. And clearly, I haven't found the right arguments to persuade them. So, you know, my advice is don't be a bully. Don't try and, you know, push things through, but try and help people understand how this change is a business imperative, how, 
you know, we're really not going to debate the actual change, but we are going to make sure that everybody along the way starts feeling comfortable with that change and starts seeing the benefits of it. And that's, you have to do that with ration, with rational arguments, with, um, you know, with convincing arguments. And the only way you can do it, can do it um, with integrity, is if you acknowledge the fact that people are going to be frightened of what the, what is coming. And um, you, you, this is because the fear that you're dealing with is not as rational as the arguments that you would put against that fear. You can tell somebody not to be afraid of deep water, but if they can't feel the feel the bottom of the whatever body of water they're in, they are going to be afraid. And the only way to not make them afraid is to say. It's okay, I've got you. Here, hang on to me. I'm standing firm, and let's wade back to where you can feel the ground too, and then we'll try again. So I don't want to beat the metaphor to death, but uh, that's what it's about, is, you know, take it at the, at, the, at the pace that your staff can handle. And, you know, whenever there is a fearful response, address that fear realistically and honestly. Don't try and push things through. That just doesn't work. Now, on your website, you talk about the difference between a group and a team. I was wondering if you could elaborate on how you see the difference between those two. Well, part of that is because how one defines a team. And um, I'm a, a great admirer of the work of the uh, British psychologist uh, Meredith Belbin, who uh, in the late 70s, early 1980s, um, described um, a theory which he calls team role theory, and which talks about teams, management teams, but any other kind of team is basically uh, similar, provided um, the team members um, are interdependent on one another. It's about the interaction between those team members and how that is required for a successful completion of any project. A group, on the other hand, is is a group of people, literally, who all pretty much do the same kind of work and may do that in a large physical, uh, in, in, a, in a group that's a physical location of multiple desks with multiple people that all have multiple talents, but all pretty much do the same task. Um, you know, an, a, a good example is a typing pool. I mean, you have typists who each single one of them independently was able to take dictation and type out a letter and then put it in a binder to have it signed by the boss. Now, thankfully, we no longer have typing pools, but that concept of we have more work than one person can handle, so we will have 10 people to handle that work, and each of them will take an equal portion of it, and everybody will do the same kind of work, that is still very much the norm. And it's a norm that, of course, was pushed to perfection by you know, by people like Henry Ford with the assembly line. That's the concept that we're talking about. So a team, on the other hand, again, is about people who need each other's contributions and and, and input to even make a project successful. So um, a a safety committee, for instance, would be more of a team. could be made up of somebody from HR, somebody from the uh, health and wellness group, um, one of the engineers who works in the manufacturing plant and who understands how those systems there work and might have someone from the union as a union representative there. And each one of them will have a particular contribution to make within that safety team, and those contributions together will then bring the end result of whatever it was that they were working on. If we go back to the world of uh, technical communications, then 
although we like to call our groups our, our groups of technical writers a team or my team or uh, our team, they're generally no more a team than the typing pool used to be. Um, in the new world of what I think content management systems are going to bring to the world of publication, um, a team would be, let's say, two writers, an illustrator, a couple of engineers, maybe someone from quality assurance, perhaps a project secretary, and you would have multiple of these teams co-located in one area in little groups, and um, groups as in the physical configuration of a group. And they would be collaborating with each other within their own project team, and they would probably be doing some collaboration across project teams because there would be crossover information that needed to pass. Now, that's a very different world than you would see in most public departments today. But I believe it's the world that's coming. It's the future. How can you help a group transform into a team? Um, by changing the composition of that group of people, uh, by changing the work, the kind of work they do, the way they work, who they work with, how the work processes are designed. You can't turn them into a team. It's you know, if you if you use the sports analogy, and truthfully, I, I don't particularly like sports analogies, but they do seem to work. In a football team, you have a offense and a defense, and you need both. They're not necessarily on the field at the same time, but it depends on which side has the ball, evidently, but you can't say, well, I have a team and each of these team members does exactly the same thing or has only slight differences between what they do, like one person has a, you know, perhaps a little bit more uh, talent for editing, whereas the other person has a bigger talent for indexing. Uh, but oh, by and large, they are quite capable of completing a project all by themselves. Uh, that's never going to be a team. So the only way to turn what currently, um, what we see currently in technical communication departments into teams is by bringing in people from the outside. So break down the barriers. We need to not have a linear process where an engineer will toss something over the fence and then uh, a technical writer will have to go over it and edit it and then turn it into something legible and then send it back, toss it back over the fence to the engineer who then at his, his or her leisure, uh, will review the content for accuracy. No, put that writer and that engineer at the same desk and have them work together straight from the horse's mouth. Have the engineer draft something, pass it over the table, and or even have the writer sit next to the engineer and say, no, 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 that's not how you write it here. Let me do that for you. That's a team. And until we get to that phase, there, you can't make a group into a team unless you change the change the group, change the composition of the group. Is that uh, is that is a bit long, but is that an answer to your question? Yeah, yeah, it's quite a radical shift in how how people would collaborate and interact. So, and that, now you talked a little bit about workspace. Um, uh -huh. Why do you think? What do you think about cubicles? Are they are they the ideal setup, or are they counterproductive, or what? Well, in my opinion, and obviously with the world that I'm that I'm envisioning that is just around the corner, and there are already some um, forward uh, companies that have uh, had, that have are on the way to going to to this model. Um, a client that I'm working with right now is already experimenting with co-location, where writers for days at a time are out there on the design floor and um, 
where illustrators and writers team up and observe the assembly, for instance, of a piece of equipment so that both of them have the direct experience of how this piece of equipment is put together and then they sit down, the writer and the illustrator together and figure out, okay, how best can we present this for the audience that we're trying to reach and you know, what things should we do in text, what things should we do in, in images and where can we have the one enhance the other. That already is, is I mean, it's not quite in the, uh, in the radicals picture that I present, but it's very well on its way to it. So <clears throat> you can't have a, a warren of little rabbit dens um, where, you know, people come, come to work and after the obligatory highs in the hallway, they dive away never to be seen again that day until the end of the day when they come out again and scurry off to their cars to go home. That does not make for collaboration because nobody ever talks to one another unless it's about social stuff at the water cooler. And if you're surrounded on three sides by walls and many of them are plugged into iPods or have other kind of um, you know, plugged in their ears to drown out um, the sounds of the environment, well, it means you can't overhear, you can't eavesdrop on what your buddy uh, one one table over is talking to a vendor about, or you can't catch the conversation that um, the engineer on the left-hand side of you is having with one of his guys on the telephone. And for true collaboration, you can't have that kind of division. You 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 need to be you need to know what's going on, not just in the formalized way where at meetings people tell you about what they've been doing, but you need to have kind of a continuous feed of information and you know you develop the knack of kind of perking up your ears when something's going on and going, Oh no, no, that's okay, it's not of consequence to me and then you just tune it out again. It's going to take some adjustment, and some people will not be able to adjust to that environment. And uh, you know that's unfortunate, but inevitable. Um, as this process becomes more and more common, I'm also convinced that it will start drawing new people, new types of people, to the profession. And we can only benefit from that. So, if if you have a team composed of an engineer, a writer, a graphic designer, web designer, from people from different departments that are coming together for mm-hmm. maybe a project that lasts six months, would they have to be mobile? Would they all use laptops and just move their space for that period of time until that project and team is is done? Or how would that work? I believe so, yeah. I, I do believe so. I believe that um, um, well, mobile in the sense of you don't have your own space, no. Um, I don't think that. Um, it's perfectly okay to say, you know, I will retain a kind of a, a, a home base, but um, it's more like that's my satellite and the mothership is the communal work area and the work area, the collaboration area, is where you sit with the rest of your, the people in your team for the duration of that project. Now, that could be anywhere. I mean, we could have that in a separate um, in a separate uh, uh, portable unit somewhere outside on the uh, on on, you know, on on the parking lot, or we could say, you know what, we're going to clear away this corner here in the warehouse because this is a great spot for us all to collaborate. Nobody else is using this room, and this is where we'll uh, we'll set up shop for the duration of the project. Um, and sometimes this will be where we set up shop because, and but where the members of this team 
vary. You know, another client of mine is, uh, has been working on, for instance, on, on lean manufacturing processes for the longest time, and they have, that's quite common there, and you'll see that in many Six Sigma projects as well, where they have a separate area where, oh, I don't know, every six months or so or every year, new people rotate into this, and some people then go back to their original roles and go back to whatever department they came from. But for the duration of them being in this particular area, they're not working on whatever they their original job was. They're working on process improvement things or process re-engineering or um, evaluating whatever it is that they're evaluating. And then they get sent back. That's perfectly okay. So that's the uh, scenario that I'm seeing there as well. So the, the ideal area for would be, you know, you have a, um, a grouping of desks and, um, and workstations, and that's the primary area. And then for those people who occasionally need to be in a distraction-free zone because they have to focus or concentrate or have to do some really, you know, nitpicky work um, or simply have to write a piece of text that they require some peace and quiet for, um, they can then move to... Um, a, for all I care, a soundproofed little room or a, or a cubicle that's set a little bit apart from this major area. And uh, Because writing is very often only a small portion of the job, actually sitting down behind a keyboard and banging away. Now I can see where, where just the manipulation of space, workspaces, can facilitate collaboration. Because if I were to sit down next to a software engineer and a business analyst trying to write a help file and I had a question they would be immediately available um, mm-hmm. so I, I, it seems like that would be a radical change in workspace though I'm curious to know if uh, companies where they've adopted that, that shift how, how that's been received well it, it's because it's such a radical shift and you're right it is, it is a radical shift at the same time it's not so radical a shift as you might think for instance in the automotive industry um, Toyota pioneered this, but they have been working with what they call quality circles for years, decades, where they have uh, assembly line workers and manufacturing engineers and design engineers and Q- QA people. They work together um, for for weeks or months on end trying to streamline a particular segment in the production line. And once they've solved that problem, the group disbands. So that's not that different. It's just that it's very radical for the technical writing community, primarily, or in, in my mind anyway, for to a large extent, because there has been this tradition of, um, you know, we writers, uh, we, need, we need peace and quiet and privacy in order to produce. And while that may very well be true for some, I also think it's an indulgence. And... You know, if, if 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 a bunch of journalists can do perfectly good work in a bustling newsroom with phones ringing off the hook and people running back and forth with all kinds of little messages, they can tune it out. Well, so technical writers might need to learn how to tune that sort of semi-distraction out occasionally when they need to. On the other hand, it's that, that energy level, that being... Um, right there that you have the immediate sources of information right there next to you that you don't have to wait until somebody responds to your email or um, you don't have to you know walk down the length of the of the plant or the office building to 
go into somebody's office only to find that they've just left for lunch. You don't have that. You're just you're just all sitting there together, and you probably already know the answer to the question you were, you might have wanted to ask because you've been eavesdropping on somebody's conversations anyway. So, yeah, it's 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 radical, but not as radical as it might seem if you really start thinking about how it works. Now, I want to get back to the topic of change and and some okay. a common scenario. Let's say that a, a department has a, a big change. They have a new style guide or a new method of writing. And they get together and let's say there are 10 people on, on the writing team and they sit around at a conference table and each one argues a different point of view and they don't reach any consensus. What would you suggest uh, somebody do in this situation? Okay, well, first of all, let me say that in my mind, consensus is overrated. Um, consensus is very often, certainly in a change environment, a it's almost a delaying tactic. Oh, we can't move forward until everybody's on board. Rubbish. It's, it's complete rubbish. Leading means that, leading. Now, why do you have these discussions? What's the purpose of these discussions? The purpose of these discussions is to find out what are people's worries, what are they, you know, how do they feel about this change, um, you know, get your input, let's come up with some suggestions, we're going to put the problem on the table and we're going to ask all your input to help us solve it. And, you know, some of those suggestions are going to be really clever and some of them are going to be, you know, well, yeah, but just completely impractical or, well, it's not really about that or whatever. So given the natural human resistance to change, in a changing environment, you're never going to get consensus because there's always going to be uncertainty about the future, and some people are just going to be ha, have a lot harder time dealing with that kind of uncertainty, and they're never going to have enough information to say, oh, all right, then I'll trust you to, to make the right decision. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's unrealistic, I think, to expect consensus. What we want is kind of a... We want, we want to get people to feel that, that their comments have been heard, that whenever we're not going to do what their suggestion is, that there's an explanation for that. So, you know, you you, you get everybody's input and suggestions and, and you, you uncover all the fears and you address those fears as best you can. And then assuming that there is a leader in this merry troop somewhere along, that leader then summarizes those comments, identifies the clearest points that need action and that are going to move everything forward, and then they need to get off their duffs and lead. And to lead means to show the way, to chart a course, to say, this is where we're going. And thank you all so much for your contributions. I know some of you you know, may still have a little bit of difficulty with this, but let's all get together and let's say, okay, even if we can't quite see where we're going yet, we have enough information that we can go to the next step and, you know, and, and trust me, we are going in the right direction. If it turns out we're wrong, I'll be the first person to admit it and we'll turn back. But we do need to move. Um, Intel's uh, chairman, Andy Grove, once said it, uh, in my mind, very, very well, that the very best thing is to make the right decision. The next best thing is to make the wrong decision. The worst thing that you can do is to not make a decision at all. And when we talk about trying to strive for consensus, in my experience, most of the time that is driven by a, 
well, let's just avoid making a decision just yet. We won't make a decision until we have consensus, which means that processes that shouldn't take months do. And that's the not doing the right thing, in my mind. Now, I have another question. You said that, Mm -hmm. or you wrote uh, on your site that managers should encourage their employees to come up with good ideas. Uh, How can managers inspire their employees to come up with with great ideas and solutions and other innovative things? Well, yeah, I know what article you're referring to. Um, Well, first of all, it's not so much about inspiring them to come up with good ideas. It's to not discourage them from presenting good ideas because I guarantee you the people on the front line generally will have a much better idea of what needs to be done to fix a problem than the manager who is at least one step removed from the front line. So where it, where it, comes, where it becomes tricky is when somebody in, you know, in their enthusiasm pokes up their hand and says, hey, I have a great idea. And the manager says, that's fabulous. Why don't you work that idea out and tell me all about it and then uh, you know, get a report on my desk by Friday and then doesn't give that person any time to do that. So now we've what that manager inadvertently has done is he's punished good behavior. So yes, we want our employees to stick up their hand when they have a good idea. But we and we don't want to discourage them from doing that. But if we've just given somebody 20 hours extra workload without taking anything away, we've just given a very powerful disincentive to ever utter another good idea. Because if, when you, what the, the lesson they're learning is if I stick up my finger saying I have a good idea, I get an extra bunch of work that I didn't ask for, and it's going to be on top of what I already am doing, and I already, already am over, overworked. So the reason most people shut up is because they're like, I'm not going to go ask for more work. Who do you think I'm nuts? So what you need to create um, and what you need to foster is an environment where it's okay to make mistakes, um, where we're going to try a lot and we're going to fail a lot, but in order for us to innovate, we need to try new things. We can't, you know, you, you, you can't win the hand if you don't put out your bet. It's that simple. Um, you know, you're never going to win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. So... Yes, it is about taking risks, but it's also about being realistic about how much work can you load one person up with. And if somebody has a great idea and is really passionate about it and wants to do some more research into, the, into it, then as a manager, you need to facilitate, okay, well, you know, Joe's now got this project. Um, Sue, Bob, um, do you think you can give Joe a hand here by taking some of the work off his plate? It's just for a week and... You know, have a chat with Bob. See if you can uh, get this, uh, get this, uh, get get some room for Joe to work out this little idea that he has. If you don't do that, then as the manager, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is making their work easier. You're just planning on the hard stuff. If you're a manager, you obviously want to get your employees engaged in what they're passionate about. How can you determine mm-hmm. an employee's level of engagement and also what they're what they're passionate about? Well, <clears throat> there are a lot of tools out there that profess to do that and will tell you exactly what your employees' strengths are. Um, you know, you've got from MBTI to QC to DISC and, you know, the um, a tool that I'm very familiar with and that 
I personally feel that amongst that crowd is probably one of the better ones, is a tool that's based on uh, Dr. Belbin's team role theory. And uh, um, it, it seems to work because it looks specifically at group, at behavior in a team, uh, work behavior. But whichever tool you decide to use, the very best tool still is managerial interest, is get to know your team. Um, make an effort to find out what their interests are, what they themselves think uh, their talents are. Uh, you may not agree with it, but you know that's one of the best ways to do it. Of course, it's also one of the things that most managers find most difficult. Um, a recent um, uh, research project um, identified managers as the one thing they lack is time to spend with their employees or even to do any kind of personnel development because they've been so uh, swamped with special projects um, that you know they very often spend all day in meetings and then when they get home they climb into the den and behind their computer and do all the work that came out of those meetings and the one thing that they should be spending time on but don't because they've got all these special projects that they're trying to finish is management by walking around, actually having conversations with your staff. Lord, what a novel concept. But that's where the best information comes from, direct out of the horse's mouth. Um, sure, tests and various assessments and psychometric assessments can give you some very interesting conversation points to have that conversation about. But you should never base your assessment of, of, of your staff on tests alone. I know you have some tips for annual performance reviews, these dreaded reports that really burden managers down, as well as team members down mm -hmm. writing these. What, what are some tips for easing that pain? <laughs> well, first of all, annual performance reviews, don't do them annually. Just don't. Do them every other month, every six weeks, whatever. Um, do them much more often. Have conversations with your staff much more often than once a year. And then once you have five or ten reports over the whole year, when it comes time for the official annual performance review that's linked to pay and raises and such, then all you need to do is kind of read those back all over and summarize the overall performance and then write that up as the official, official performance review. Because the thing is that annual performance reviews are handicapped by the very, very human trait to vividly remember the events that just occurred, that is roughly between now and six weeks ago. And really all it takes is one screw-up in the period immediately before that annual review and this poor worker's performance review goes down the toilet. And don't for one second believe that managers are immune to that phenomenon. They're not. They're human, which means that they suffer from it too. And it is very, very hard to recapture something that happened 11 months ago. You just don't remember it. It gets flooded out by uh, anything that has happened more recently. That's just the way our human memories work, and thank God our human memories work that way, or we'd never get anything done. So have them a lot more often, and have them in a way that's, that's not a one-sided conversation where the manager tells the staff member, what he or she thinks, and then the staff member gets to comment on it. No, turn it around. Even start that conversation with, you know, what, if anything, have I done in the past month that, you, that has helped you do your job more effectively? 
ask the question of your staff then, because you'd be surprised what kind of answers you'd get. And ask the, ask the next question, what can I do in the next month to make your job easier? That's what it's about. That's what, as the leader of that department, your job is, is to create an environment wherein your staff can be, as, can, can be maximally productive and can be, because they're being supported, can be totally engaged with the work that they're doing. Emma, you've given us a lot of great information. Is there any question that I, I haven't asked you but which you'd like to comment on? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, once you start talking about change management, and because it's, it's, because it's so poorly understood, I think, I think that a lot of companies, when they talk about change management, are really talking about uh, change scheduling, and I actually wrote an article about that recently, um, it's not about what's going to happen when and informing people about that. That's important, definitely, but it's not the key information. I mean, if you know, I live on the West Coast and, and I've been told for decades that the big quake 9.0 on the Richter scale is on its way. In fact, it seems to be 150 um, years overdue already, so it could come any minute now. The fact that I know that it's coming is not in any way going to diminish my terror when it actually hits. So knowing that something's going to happen doesn't take away the fear that you feel or the anxiety that you would feel when it actually happens to you. So real change management is about helping people acknowledge, understand, cope with that fear, and then ultimately adjust to the new circumstances. So helping people develop new coping strategies, new work behaviors so that it's no longer a fearful or anxious uh, proposition. Um, it's all about being prepared for this change and pre prepared is uh, not prepared as in I know about it, but it's I've taken my measures. I've you know, taken some courses that will help me understand better what XML does and how XML publishing works because frankly it's still a little bit, sounds a little bit weird to me. Well, so go and find out. Talk to people who have done it before. You know, become sign up for discussion forums on the web where people uh, talk about what it's like when this happens to your department. Because again, knowledge is power, and fear will make you powerless. So the best way to overcome fear is by finding out what's really the truth. The um, that's that's the best way that I can think we can close this interview up. Now, if somebody wants to contact you uh, and hire you to, to do some performance improvement or just to give a seminar or a workshop on how to deal with change, uh, how, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, the best way to get a hold of me is to go to my company's website, and that's uh, www.hamer-associates.ca. That's CA for Canada, because that's where I am. Um, however, I will work anywhere in the world as long as you'll fly me there. Um, you'll find, a, you know, whoever, go to my site, there'll be lots of articles and uh, information on there, plus obviously also the information on how to contact me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'll happily spend time um, just discussing what the challenge is, and if, if it's something that I can't help with, I'll be the first to let you know, and... Uh, I'll definitely, if it's in my power to do so, refer you to whoever I think might be able to help. 
thanks for thanks for talking to to me, and uh, I really appreciate your time and all the information you've given us. Excellent. Well, it's been a, it's been a pleasure, Tom, and um, thank you so much for uh, for calling me and uh, getting me to give you these answers to all these fabulous questions that you asked me. Thank you very much. Your topic is fascinating, and you really have some interesting, different ideas. So it's 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 pretty eye opening to hear them. <laughs> well, I don't know if if, if uh, Scott um, actually mentioned that to you, but I, I have quite the reputation of being a bit of a maverick. So, um, and I oh, and yeah. I relish that. I yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are so many people out there that are horribly boring and are saying things that aren't particularly effective. And I like to shake things up. I you know I. I like I said, my focus is on, you know, people and change and changing behaviors and very much changing the way people think about work. I think that's extremely important because we can't, you know, we, we can't keep going on the way we're going on because the more technical writing is commoditized, the more at risk we are that it's going to go to countries that, you know, that are emerging as um, as uh, source countries for this kind of work and we're all going to end up not having any work at all. So you know, because we can't do it as cheaply as they can in in the the Far East or in Singapore or wherever it is that uh, that it's happening, and even in the, India is now getting for some is getting too expensive for for simple coding work. So they're sending it to you know I don't know places like Mongolia and whatever. And power power to the people there that they're now taking up that work and. Uh, Gradually entering into technology, technologically advanced societies. I think that's wonderful, but we need to make sure that we also go to the next level. And part of that is you're going to have to change the way you do things. So yeah, that's very much my focus. You're listening to Tech Writer Voices. Our website is techwritervoices.com. To leave a comment on this podcast, call seven two seven four nine three. 2139 and leave a voicemail on this Skype number. You can also send me an email at tom at techwritervoices.com or you can use the comment feature on this post. To contact Emma, visit her website at hamer-associates.ca and her email is there. It's also on the show notes link here. The music was from Podshow Music Network. I'd also just alert you to a survey that we're running on the site to try to learn more about how you listen to podcasts and if it would take you three minutes to do that i'd really appreciate it